everybody to Connecting the Universe. Author and researcher Mike Ricksecker back at you this Wednesday night here on the Connected Universe portal. Uh, for those that are not joining us live, that are listening to the podcast later on Spotify, iHeartRadio, iTunes, and other locations, or listening to the syndicated version on KGRA Radio or KPNL Radio, uh, please, by all means, join us for the live class every Wednesday night, 8 o'clock p.m. Check us out through ConnectedUniversePortal.com. Join in, ask questions, see the full presentations. It is an interactive class, so by all means, come join us. And there's, uh, looks like we have a good crowd in there so far. Nicole's tagging everybody. Sarah Yusuf is in the house. So is Anne Celine. Fantastic. And uh, I know others will be in here shortly. So, all right. So let's go ahead and and start here. Where I want to start is kind of what I've been doing the last few weeks. And uh, it was a great suggestion by Nicole. Is every week go ahead and pose a question uh, to you guys that pertains to the upcoming class. And so. This week's was, and it's all the way down at the bottom here, isn't it? Or did I not even? There it is. Okay. All right. Which ancient symbol calls out to you? And I uh, used the example of the Ouroboros here, or Ouroboros, as some people call it. Uh, I stick with Ouroboros. It's just, it's, it seems to make more sense to me, uh, English, right? But uh, I did have some responses to that. I got this uh, a little bit late just uh, today. So a uh, couple of responses, and we're going to go ahead and get to those. And we're starting with uh, both Victoria Monday and Nicole had the same suggestion or, or same input, and that was the Celtic knot. Uh, this is one of the examples of the Celtic knot. There's actually uh, a variety of different forms of this. Uh, so uh, they're basically complete loops, have no start or finish. Uh, they represent eternity, whether this means loyalty, faith, friendship, love. Uh, the pattern is said to represent the interconnection of life in our place within the universe. It's kind of interesting is most of the information relating to Celtic knots is dated after 450 AD when there was a Christian influence on the Celtic civilization. So there is some of that influence within there. Some historians believe that the origins of the Celtic knots could be dated back as far as 500 BC, although uh, there's little evidence to, physical evidence to, to support that. But, you know, I always think there's a little nugget of truth within uh, everything. So uh, very well could be. And what's interesting is you do see the knot designs uh, used in early 3rd century Roman floor mosaics. So uh, quite interesting there. And, uh, and there's Nicole, Victoria, does this make us soul symbol sisters? <laughs> uh, very cute. Very cute. So uh, Anseline also chimed in. Uh, the Ouroboros was one thing that uh, she had. She actually had two. Uh, the Ouroboros was one. We're going to get to more on that later. We kind of do a deep dive on that. And then the Ankh was the other. Of course, I saw uh, plenty of this when I was in Egypt. Let me get the comment off of there. Okay. Uh, and the Ankh... Uh, is basically a key of life or key of the Nile. It represents the, represents the word life 
and as a symbol of life itself. And you see this all over the place in, in ancient Egypt. So uh, what you see here, this is actually, uh, where was this? Was this Edfu? Um, I think it was, uh, I think it was Edfu. Because you're seeing a lot of uh, horrors here. And so you see them holding the uh uh, the Ankh there, almost like keys, so kind of pertaining to key of life, uh, and you see a, a lot in a lot of these different friezes and depictions and artwork in ancient Egypt. You see the Ankh being held, being worn. Sometimes you know, somebody might be feeding it to another person. Uh, it's it's all over. So we're going to be getting into a lot of these different things this evening. So buckle in. Now, we've already covered in some of the past weeks here, because we had our, uh, our three-unit uh, series on Egypt, then we rolled right into Stargates and Portals, and so we did get some of that uh, in those particular classes. So just kind of a refresher uh, with, the, with the Stargates. It's another one from, from Edfu, uh, where you have the great Stargate depiction. I'm not going to... Uh, you know, rehash everything that we already went over, but just to kind of get the ball rolling here. These are uh, uh, one of the Stargates. I'm always really interested in seeing the swirl patterns everywhere. So this here is from Chaco Canyon in New Mexico, but we've seen that all over the place. And that was one of the things that I really kind of honed in on when we covered Stargates and Portals, because like with Chaco Canyon here, these are in relation to the star people. Uh, we see that in here's ancient Egyptian pottery uh, with the swirls, and they had all kinds of uh, different examples of this. Uh, here's Newgrange, uh, with, again, with the swirl patterns, and then uh, there's Sardinia. And so you know, a, lot of these, a lot of these type of patterns, people believe, uh, date back to the time of Atlantis, that there's something about the Atlantean civilization that uh, this... Uh, represented the ability to, you know, to use energy to access portals, possibly even uh, Stargate type of technology. So, um, again, we're not going to do a deep dive into that because we've uh, we've already covered that. Uh, so, uh, Sarah Yusuf already asked, why does symbology often rely on symmetry? We'll get into that a little bit later too. I do want to make with this comment here. I do want to um, make a distinction here. For one, uh, symbology was never a term until Dan Brown uh, started writing his books. <laughs> uh, Robert Langdon as a symbologist does not exist. There is no such profession. Um, the term is symbolism. Now, if there, because it's kind of entered our lexicon here to properly to properly use the word symbology would mean like study of symbols. But when we're talking about uh, a symbol having meaning, we're talking about the symbolism of a uh, particular object or a particular uh, piece of artwork or, or what whatever it may be, uh, sculpture, whatever. But yeah, that is a good point. Uh, there is a lot of symbolism that does rely on symmetry, and we'll get into that here in a little bit, uh, especially toward the end. Especially toward the end. So where we're going first, though, we are going to stick around in in Egypt for a little bit. Uh, something that we have not covered yet 
is the Eye of Horus. What's interesting about this is that it's actually the origins of our Rx symbol for you know, our medicine. When we go to the pharmacist, that's the symbol that's used. It actually originates from the Eye of Horus. And basically, Eye of Horus uh, is associated with well-being, uh, healing, protection. Uh, basically, it, it comes out of the, the conflict between uh, Horus and his rival Set. And so, you know, Set was kind of like the bad guy of uh, you know, ancient Egyptian uh, mythology. And basically what happened was Set tore out Horus's eyes. And uh, the eye was afterward uh, healed or returned to Horus, depending on the story that is told. Uh, with the assistance of another one of the gods, and usually in the story it's it's uh, Thoth, uh, which Thoth we're going to talk a little bit more about him later, but he's like the god of of wisdom, magic, think a, a lot of different things, but uh, he, he's an important one. Uh, Horse then offered his eye to his deceased father Osiris as a way to. Uh, revitalize Osiris's power in the afterlife. So Eye of Horus has been used for many metaphors over the years, like Eye of the Mind, Third Eye, Eye of Truth, uh, Eye of the God Inside the Human Mind, this sort of thing. And there is a, uh, a reason for that. And what's, what's interesting here, you see all the different uh, fractions, like one-eighth, one-sixteenth, one-fourth, one-half, all these different things on here this this is important um, the fractions uh, were basically units that the Egyptians used to to measure whether it was grain or flour or even their like you know herbs and medicines of the time and so these were the denominations uh, that they used and so these these fractions um, and basically the measurements come straight out of the eye uh, were used for that, but when it comes to the more metaphysical aspect of it, um, and we get into, um, I'm sorry, not not metaphysical, but actual physical aspect of it, um, it actually pertains to a number of different things within uh, the way the human brain works, and this is kind of interesting because this actually comes from the uh, uh, these illustrations here actually come from the National Institute of Health. They actually did a study on this because there is the where metaphysics come in uh, with the with the pineal gland. This is uh, the the gland right in the middle there, basically the circle that's depicted here in the middle of the brain. In this illustration, again, I apologize to those listening to the podcast later or the uh, syndicated shows like on uh, KGRA or KGRA. Um, you won't see these. You need to come join us to watch the presentation. Uh, again, Wednesday nights, connectuniverseportal.com. Um, but the pineal gland is supposed to be where the uh, human mind is supposed to be able to connect with that supernatural world, the more metaphysical side. You know, people have 
uh, a more you know active pineal gland or, or people that are you know supposed to be more psychic in nature and things like that but it has it has uh, these characteristics that look like the eye of horse and so NIH did a study on this and the different fractions that we saw back here play out within the brain so uh, the one half accounts for the sense of smell the one-fourth represents sight the one-eighth represents thought the one-sixteenth represents hearing the one-thirty-second represents taste and the one-sixty-fourth represents touch of course, I don't recommend doing this with your own brain and <laughs> measuring all that, uh, but it is it is quite interesting uh, how we actually see this play out uh, within our medical community. I've kind of disparaged them before when it comes to their interpretation of of shadow people because they basically chalk it all up to hallucinations. Uh, which is extremely inaccurate. I'm not going to get into to all of that now. See my work, A Walk in the Shadows, <laughs> or uh, or any number of the uh, videos or documentaries I have out there about the subject. Uh, but it's interesting to me that they've latched on or caught on to this idea and have actually published a paper on that and have uh, depicted these sorts of things. We're actually going to get into a... Uh, a deeper dive on ancient symbolism within the body uh, for a later class at another time. So that's, uh, Nicole's been wanting me to do that one for uh, quite a while. I think it was last year, uh, probably a year ago now that she uh, first proposed that, maybe even longer, I don't know. But uh, we'll do a deeper dive on that at another time. Interesting thing about all of this though, it's like all of this said, when the ancient Egyptians made the mummies, when somebody passed away and they, you know, did the mummification process, the brain was the one thing that they threw away. They kept all the other body parts, but they scrambled up the brain and and they tossed it out. So, you know, with all of this symbolism, the measurements, you know, everything going on with the uh, uh, the pineal gland and the brain and all of that stuff the Egyptians didn't care one iota about the brain. So, kind of ironic. So, that's the eye of horse, but yet there's another symbol that's extremely, extremely similar. That's the eye of Ra. So, what's the difference between the two? Uh, eye of Ra, of course, uh, looks extremely similar. It looks to be, you know, just like a mirror image of the eye of horse. Essentially, it is. Uh, they're both considered symbols of protection, but the Eye of Ra is really only supposed to protect pharaohs and royalty. The Eye of Horus was more for the, the common folk. Um, and while uh, it was a symbol of protection, the Eye of Ra, uh, it was a more aggressive type of protection uh, or even you know somewhat destructive while they were uh, undertaking that protection. It's also a symbol of power, good luck, uh, represents heat and light, uh, a, a number of different things. So you could look at the, the Eye of Ra as a more aggressive type of a symbol, 
the Eye of Horus, a more passive type, but they have a lot of similarities be between the two. Um, Eye of Ra would be the, the sun, Eye of Horus would be the moon, these sorts of things like that. So again, we're diving down into, uh, into more of ancient Egypt here. So what will end up happening here is this will end up becoming an appendix for those that just want the uh, Egypt information uh, that are not members of the Connected Universe Portal. So you people listening to the uh, the podcast later, uh, there is a uh, completely separate Egyptian kind of course, quote-unquote course. I just call it content or uh, feature because there's a lot of different stuff in it. Uh, that's on the ConnectedUniversePortal.com. So I will add that uh, to that feature, which is already over nine hours worth uh, of video and, and what have you. So, um, yeah, Tom McNicholas, uh, yeah, they, they, they pulled the brain out the nose. Um, uh, Sarah Yusuf, was this similar ratio to the, uh, golden mean? So yeah, all these things are, are very much related. Um, when you start talking about the golden ratio, phi, um, the Fibonacci sequence, all of those sorts of things, all these things are, are very much related, uh, certainly. So, all right, and I see uh, Jen and Maver in the house. Fantastic, great to see you as well. All right, so that's Eye of Horus. And uh, so now we're gonna, um, I mentioned earlier that uh, one of the things that, you know, Anne had put out there for her, uh, when we go back to our question here, which ancient symbol calls to you? One of those for her was the Araboros. So, and like I said, there are two different ways to pronounce it. Some people say Ouroboros, other people say Araboros. I say Araboros because English. <laughs> that's the way. If I was to sound, sound it out in English, that's the way it would. Uh, I would pronounce it. So basically, this is the symbol of the snake or the serpent or the dragon uh, eating its own tail. Uh, it is basically a symbol of renewal or the uh, cycle of life or the universe, constant uh, renewal of life, death, and back around in a circle over and over and over again. Uh, it is actually known as the oldest allegorical symbol in alchemy. Uh, in that context of alchemy is represented the concept of eternity and endless return as well as the unity of time's beginning and end now we're going to get a little bit deeper into this particular interpretation of it this dates back well this drawing uh was created in the 1400s it has its origins further back than that but where we first see the Araboros is actually back in the tomb of King Tut, King Tutankhamun. Uh, this is actually on his shrine. And you can see uh, in the circle uh, around the depiction of the, of the king here, you know, is the snake eating its own tail. So this was, well... King Tut died in about 1323 BC. So this is almost 3,000 years ago. So it's been with us at least as long as that. Uh, 
you know, obviously with mo with most symbols, they didn't usually just suddenly invent something, you know, and throw it on the uh, shrine here. It would have been a symbol that would have already previously been in use. We do not know how long before this. So another interesting uh, location in which I saw it in Egypt, you know, of course I'm going through my photos and, uh, you know, trying to find some good ones for, for this particular uh, discussion. I did find one here. This is uh, King Ramses VI. Ramses VI uh, tomb. This is in the Valley of the Kings, uh, obviously. <laughs> so was so Tut. Uh, and, oh, I should say that I did not get a chance to go into uh, into Tut's tomb. They had that uh, closed off for, uh, for renovation, which I don't know how much renovation you need to do on a, you know, tomb that's uh, thousands of years old, but okay. Uh, so, but another depiction here, kind of the same thing, not a perfect circle like it was with, uh, with Todd. I mean, you look at that, that is, you know, pretty much a perfect circle. You know, maybe a little off, but uh, pretty darn close. This is more like a rectangle. Uh, and basically it's encircling a depiction of the Pharaoh. And, and the idea here was for the Pharaoh to have that renewal of life, to have that uh, essentially reincarnation moment. Because while they were dying here, they were going to be living again out there at the constellation of Orion. So they were going to need to come back to, to life again and have that renewal and, and return. So they were, and, and it's, you know, there are multiple meanings here so you know returning to a life but also returning to where the egyptians believe that they came from which is uh the, the constellation of orion which and uh, most particularly sirius which is which is a part of that constellation so this is all all symbolizing that uh, we also see it in other places and give me a second here to upload it because apparently i forgot to uh upload a particular image here, but we also see it in Hindu beliefs. We actually see it all over the place. I'm going to give a uh, couple of examples here. If I can uh, grab this real quick. There it is. Okay. So here we see this is a little bit of a different image of the serpent <laughs> he has like a much fatter belly um or at least upper torso part uh looks a little bit different than more most serpents and snakes that that we see maybe he's already eating it uh but you see here the uh the tortoise and then the elephants holding up the the world on the uh on the back of the elephant so you know in uh hindu beliefs the world was uh was basically riding on the back of a tortoise. So uh, all of our, our land masses were supposed to be on, on the back of these tortoises. So that's what they're depicting here uh, as far as the world. But then you have this, again, this depiction of, of eternity, of this, uh, de this depiction of renewal that around and around and around the, the world goes, this, this concept of, of endless return that the, the world ends, but then it it comes back around and is reset. Uh, so something that uh, that I've been 
working on as part of my study and research for uh, for connecting the universe. That's working title for um, a book after the Alaska Triangle book that I'm working on. And so got some doodles here. I'll just toss up there on the screen real quick. Uh, been working on for a while. But essentially, you think about the way that our universe works. Like we originated out of the Big Bang. And at some point, the universe is going to, to end. A lot of people believe that it will end. There's a couple different ways it could possibly end. Some believe that it's just going to keep expanding and expand eventually into nothing and you know just be a empty vacuum out there. I don't quite believe that. There are other people that, that believe it will end in a big crunch, that eventually it will contract back into that split second where it becomes a big bang again and then explodes back outward. So the question of what was before the big bang, well, there was another universe and it's this constantly recycling universe over and over and over again. So for those that want to know, you know, what was before we were before different forms, the, the planets would have been different, all that sort of thing. But it was what was before the universe was the universe. <laughs> so it's the constantly recycling, renewing. And that's what the Arabros represents. So let's take it a little bit deeper. I, I really enjoyed, really enjoyed doing a uh, deep dive on this. Um, I went a little bit deeper than I, I thought I was going to, and that's one of the reasons why I was behind today a, a few minutes and uh, getting the class started because I was just behind on everything. So this particular drawing dates to 1478. Um, and what's what's funny about this is when I look at it and I look at that particular serpent head, to me it looks like a fox head, <laughs> but it's a serpent uh, you know, eating its own tail. Uh, but it's drawn by Theodorus Pelicanos. It's a copy of a lost alchemical tract by Synesius. Uh, now, when he produced this manuscript, it's, it's part of a larger work. Um, it's now known as the Parisnus uh, Graecus 2327. Excuse, me, excuse my Latin. I, I did not take Latin in high school. I took German. It's currently held in the Bibliothèque Nationale in France. Uh, it has copies of texts, or includes it includes a lot, but it uh, includes copies of texts from the 11th century and other works that are just completely of no, unknown origin. This one, that is supposed to be a copy of a lost alchemical tract by Synesius, uh, you're probably wondering, okay, who in the world is Synesius? Well, Synesius, and here's a uh, illustration of him. He was a Greek bishop of Ptolemais in ancient Libya, circa uh, 373 AD to 414. So basically, he was there in Africa. Libya is right next to Egypt. And in fact, he, he did visit Egypt many, many times. Uh, in 393, uh, he and his brother went to Alexandria, and they became a uh, what was known as a Neoplatonist. We're not going to get into all that, but basically a disciple of Hypatia. Uh, Hypatia was uh, you know, basically a renowned philosopher at the time, female. 
and uh, worked out worked a lot out of the great library of Alexandria. Now this was just after just after that great purge and destruction of the great library in Alexandria. Keep that in mind because we're gonna get back to that in just a moment. So uh, a, a significant guy though he uh, in 398 is chosen as an envoy to the imperial court in Constantinople. He returned to Alexandria in 403, where he got married and moved to Cyrene in Libya in 405 and uh, lived out you know, most of his days there. Uh, ended up becoming a Christian bishop, but he's an, again, he's an interesting character. He maintained that Neoplatonism, uh, and he studied alchemy. In fact, uh, his Letters that he sent to Hypatia from Libya back to Alexandria actually are uh, have some of the earliest known references to the hydrometer, which was used in measuring measuring relative uh, density of liquids. And this is you know, kind of important because this is something this is scientific now. This is something that uh, his Christian faith would have frowned upon. They would have they would have thought it you know magical and occult and and all of that. They would not have liked that. Um, I use a hydrometer when I make wine, by the way. <laughs> so it's something something that, uh, you know, he devised and came up with back then. Well, we don't know if he actually uh, invented the hydrometer, but he has the, like, earliest references to it, so it would have been invented back then. We still use it t today, uh, which I find absolutely fascinating. But remember when I said this was all around the time just after the destruction of the Great Library in Alexandria. Now, when the library in Alexandria was destroyed, it was kind of destroyed in phases because you had uh, parts of the library. You had the, the, the main part, and then you had like these smaller sister branches. Like we talked before about the Serapium in Alexandria, which was different than the Serapium down uh, by the Step Pyramid in, in Saqqara. Uh, but it was still like a, a, a temple to the bulls, the Apis bulls. But they had a lot of, of works there. So the basically last remnants of the Great Library of Alexandria, the Serapium, was destroyed in 391. But a lot of people believe that many of the texts from there were already removed uh, before that happened. Now, we do know that a lot was lost between the different uh, destructions of you know, all the facets of the Great Library, and who knows what was lost to time. But the reason why I mention all this is because when we look at this document, when Pelicanos reproduced this in 1478, he was reproducing it off of texts that were written by Synesius, where he, in Synesius, Delta and Alchemy at the time of the destruction of the Great Library in Alexandria. So this may be a glimpse into one of the texts that would have been at the Great Library. It, um, you know, a lot of these things would have gone into hiding. They would have been passed down. Synesius would have been, uh, as a learned individual, as a bishop, uh, bishops did a lot of rewriting of ancient texts to keep them 
uh, going forward to pass it on to the next generation so that they would have this knowledge. So if this is passed on from him and it's alchemical, this is very likely something that would have been at the great library. So I find that absolutely fascinating. Uh, if we still have some of those texts in place, of course, again, much of it is lost, but uh, I find that part absolutely fascinating. So, all right. So that's the, that's the Araboros. Uh, about halfway through the show, if you guys have any questions, feel free to uh, throw them down there in the chat. You've had a couple so far, which uh, I do appreciate. Uh, but we're going to we'll come back to Egypt, but we're going to go to another part of the world right now. And that's Corral in Peru. Corral is an interesting place. Anybody who uh, has started watching the new season of Ancient Aliens, you would have, excuse me, you would have seen this. And... Um, you know, to me, the little synchronicities in the universe are fascinating because, um, you know, I was already geared up to do this show on ancient symbolism. And lo and behold, um, the new season of Ancient Aliens comes out. And, you know, I, I, uh, I usually buy the seasons on Voodoo and I just tossed it up there. Uh, and all of a sudden, boom, they're talking about Kural and some of the ancient symbolism there. So Kural, a lot of people are, are not too familiar with this particular uh, location. And what's fascinating about it is it's, it's pre-Incan. So it dates further back than, than the Incans. Uh, it is actually now considered one of the uh, oldest archaeological sites in the Americas. And one of the fascinating things that they found there is on a piece of pottery, and they call this the Kral Staff God. Uh, this dates back about 4,300 years. And you see this little figure, and you see his arm stretched out, and he seems to be holding these couple of staffs. Okay, so what, Mike? <laughs> what does this have to do with anything? Well, Fast forward 3,000 years, so 3,000 years later, you see uh, these depictions in the area, in the region of Viracocha. And what is he holding? He's holding a couple of staff. Some people say lightning bolts. It's hard to really determine just from uh, you know these depictions. You can kind of interpret how you want. But very, very similar to uh, the staff god, arms outstretched, holding these these rod-type items. We also see this on the uh, Gate of the Sun, uh, which is uh, in the Lake Titicaca area. And we talked about Lake Titicaca uh, a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Stargates. We didn't really get into the Gate of the Sun here too much, uh, but this is another location that... Uh, that people think could possibly be uh, a stargate. But you see at the at the top of the, the gate of the sun here, there's Viracocha holding the two rods. Uh, so we see this ancient symbol that has, again, been passed down over the years. You know, 3,000-year gap between what people call, well... The South American history is really interesting. So it seems most of the structures that are in that area 
the archaeologists always say, it's Incan, it's Incan, it's Incan, it's Incan. The locals there that are descended from the Incans say, no, that predated our people. That was before us. And so Corral is certainly uh, pre-Incan. There's probably some mainstreams that, that will say, no, it's, it's just an ancient Incan site. But far predates that. So I always find the connections interesting over the years, how you still see these same symbols. Well, something that we talked about before, uh, a few weeks ago, when we were, we're going back to Egypt, <laughs> we were talking about a lot of the uh, like friezes and depictions on the walls and carvings uh, that we were seeing. We were seeing the different rods that they were used. So we see here in Corral, there's the, the staff god holding the different rods. Then we see 3,000 years later, Viracocha using the rods. Well, at that same time that Viracocha is being depicted with rods, we see the use of rods in Egypt. And actually, this photo doesn't really show the rods. I have it here for a reason. Okay, here's use of, we saw use of rods. A little hard to see. This is at Edfu, and they've chiseled out a lot, unfortunately, the ancients, uh, with the ancient vandalism, unfortunately. But they're using the different rods to levitate the temple. And that's the reason why I had this other uh, depiction here was that's the starting point of the temple on the ground. And then they use the rods for the levitation. We're going to show a few more depictions here. I see some comments coming in the chat. Um, and yeah, Sarah, it's interesting. You get similar symbolism of very different geographical regions. Yeah, it, it's absolutely fascinating. You see the same symbolism everywhere, especially with like pyramidal structures. You see the pyramids all over the world uh, in very similar architectural styles. Like the Step Pyramid of Saqqara in Egypt, you see that same style in many of the Incan and Mayan uh, pyramids. So, um, could this symbolism be an individual having energy that comes through their hands, a master of energy? Yeah, and that's the interesting thing with the rods, is that the, the rods which are being held onto by the hands. Now, is the energy coming through the person to energize the rods to perform sort, some sort of function? It's hard to see that there with the uh, with the depictions in South America with, with Viracocha. Of course, you know, watching a show like Ancient Aliens, they're going to... Uh, you know, gear all this toward, you know, these are extraterrestrials. These are, these are the gods that came down. They had some sort of technology that they're hold, holding and utilizing. And I'm not saying no, and I'm not discrediting that. Very well uh, could have been. We don't know. But we're seeing the same sort of thing uh, in Egypt when we see what these guys are, are doing with the rods. And we see these rods... Uh, all over the place. So that's that's Edfu, and we we saw, um, and I I just didn't have time to get all of my different photos. I mean, I had you know over a thousand photos that I took, and there were all kinds of different variations of the rods being used. Um, but you see again, uh, this is Luxor. So these are very large statues in which 
you can see in their hands there um, what would have been the rods. Uh, they have them, they're kind of short and truncated, uh, so they're not extending outward, but they are holding those sorts of things in their hands. And you, we see this also in the, uh, the very massive statue of Ramses. This is in Memphis, where uh, he's, he's holding uh, the, the rods in his hands there. Uh, another depiction here, this is Abydos. This is the king's list uh, at Abydos, and they're holding the rods here, and then there's the, the long king's list. So we, we saw this type of stuff everywhere in Egypt, and the problem was that has been noted is that whatever rods that they used have never been found. You see them in all these different depictions, whether it's, you know, it could be painted artwork, it could be sculptures, it could be the friezes that are on the wall, different carvings. And we know that they existed, but we've never actually found one. And so it's another one of those fascinating things with me when it comes to the mainstream archaeologists saying different things like when it comes to like the construction of the pyramids and uh you know in other uh sculptures in you know the sarcophagi and things like that when uh, people try to say well they had other tools that they had to use there's no way that they could have used like they try to say copper chisels and things like that and it's like there, there's no physical way a copper chisel could have made this they would have had to have some other tool. The mainstream archaeologists will say, well, we've never found any remnant of those tools. Okay, great. We've never found any remnants of these rods either, yet we see them in all these different depictions. Another interesting thing is we've never seen a, a depiction of them building the pyramids either. <laughs> They've always just kind of existed, but that's a story for another time. We've kind of talked about that before anyway. So what exactly are these rods? We don't know. Were they something to harness energy? Seems so, because you're seeing different things here like, like levitation, and they were used, it seems, in a lot of different uh, ceremonial practices. Uh, so they had some sort of significant, significant power. Um, all right, so question here. Is there a link between similar, uh, I'm going to say s symbols, in natural sacred geometry? Um, we're going to get into some of that here in just a second, actually, uh, into some sacred geometry. Since we are, uh, the last place we left off here was, was Abydos with the King's List. So also at Abydos is the Osirion. Now the Osirion is back behind the uh, Abydos Temple. And this is a controversial location because the architecture is far, far different than the rest of uh, the Abydos Temple. It's essentially underground. It's at a lower level. So this was built much, much longer uh, in, in the past than Abydos Temple. We were not able to go down there. 
this is a special access area and they wanted usually you can kind of bribe the guards a little bit slip them a few dollars hey can we go down there um, for this particular location apparently something else was going on later that day and they didn't want to chance us doing whatever there uh, so for us to go down there, they wanted a lot of money <laughs> that we were not about to pay. So why do I mention the Osirion? Because, okay, you see where those stairs are, uh, those wooden stairs. So you see the, the stone stairs on the left-hand side, and you see the wooden ones uh, that come down and basically bring you into the, uh, the middle of the, of the temple there. Well, on one of those pillars, you see the um, the lintel there that basically, uh, you know, kind of covers, you, you got a couple columns and right in the front, basically bottom of the photo, you see the lintel coming across. Uh, on the one particular pillar down there, you see this, the flower of life carved into the pillars two of them that are there kind of random um, very finely carved in there and the big question is why so flower of life just a little background for for those that don't know and for those listening later flower of life it's a geometrical design that consists of 19 circles of the same size that are interconnected the image looks like a set of equally proportioned flowers. So yeah, it looks like a bunch of flowers that are uh, that are interlinked there. Uh, there's a pretty cool uh, uh, strategy game, uh, kind of a little mind teaser game called uh, Da Vinci's Challenge. Came out in the uh, early to mid 2000s that uh, is based off of this. It's kind of fun. They call it Da Vinci's Challenge because uh, Da Vinci Code was big at the time. And they're like, well, Da Vinci studied it. So we're going to call it Da Vinci's Challenge. It's kind of funny. But basically, uh, you know, followers of sacred geometry believe uh, these type of patterns uh, demonstrate an interconnected interconnectedness of life on Earth and universal existence. Uh, kind of considered the blueprints for creation. So... Here you see, you're wondering about, uh, you know, sacred geometry at these locations. And, you know, we're seeing it right here uh, at the Osirion, which is far older than the temple that's above ground, which is, which is Abydos. So, um, you know, absolutely fascinating. We have no idea what it's doing down there. Uh, did the people who who built the Osirion, did they put that there? Was it somebody who came across later on? And if it was somebody that came across later on, when would that have been? You know, how how much further down the road could that have been? I mean, you can't, you can't carbon date rock. <laughs> um, you know, it just, you, you can do things like find out uh, when the rock was formed in the earth they've actually recently done something like that at stonehenge where they actually i say recently but the core sample is from like the 1950s and they used modern technology from this core sample that was taken in, in the 1950s to determine when the rock itself was formed that doesn't tell you when they harvested it out of the ground and put it in place 
you know, that just tells you when on the planet the rock itself was formed, uh, which is far different because uh, you're talking stuff that would be like billions of years old. So you can't carbon date rock. So we, we have no idea when that would have been carved in there. Uh, but, you know, obviously somebody putting sacred geometry there onto uh, this ancient, ancient temple. And with the Osirion, it is highly controversial as to the dating of it. Because um, this is one of those locations in which those that believe in a pre-cataclysmic civilization, so those that would have inhabited the land of Egypt prior to whether it was the Great Flood or you know whatever in the heck happened 10,000 years ago um, that really changed history, like basically back the time of, you know, Gobekli Tepe. That's, you know, a lot of people believe like the, the pyramids, you know, may be that old, that dated back to that time. And then some cataclysm, you know, wiped out civilization and they had to kind of reform. Um, and of course, even whatever that cataclysm could be, whether it was, whether it was the Great Flood, whether it was, the, we know the Great Flood happened because every civilization talks about it and there is some uh, geological evidence for it. Um, but some people believe there was a comic impact that caused a lot of this. Or the another idea is, you know, massive solar flare. And all those are are completely uh, applicable. Jeez, um, we got like 10 minutes left. <laughs> um, how did that happen? All right. So 10 minutes left. Uh, we'll get into the, uh, I think this is our last one. Uh as above, so below. And I'll talk about symmetry. There we go. There is symmetry right there with all the symbolism in here. So again, you see the Ouroboros that encircles the entire thing. Uh, as above, so below. This is uh, basically the the crux of Hermetica. Uh, as above, so below. As within, so without. As it is in heaven, so it is on earth. And so you're seeing mirror images between the top image and the bottom image. Uh, you see the interlocking triangles. Uh, we kind of mentioned this uh, briefly, I think a couple of weeks ago, where you had you know the blade and the chalice. Um, or I think I might have mentioned that in a morning mug. might not have been on uh, Connecting Universe. It, it was probably a morning mug on uh, Connecting Universe portal. Uh, but the interlocking triangles basically make the the Star of David. You see the Templar cross right in the middle. Uh, you see at the very bottom is is a pyramid. So you're seeing all these different symbols uh, that are within this one, and then you know the Ouroboros around it, depicting the uh, eternal renewal and the continuous cycle uh, of all of this. So. Uh, I've mentioned it before uh, when we talk about you know Hermeticism, the Hermetica. This is you know Her Hermes Trismegistus, uh, or uh, Hermes thrice great. Basically, he is the Greek version of Thoth from from Egypt, uh, and the the epithet thrice great is uh, supposed to be derived from. Uh, Yes, Thoth, but found at the temple of Esna. Uh, we're supposed to say Thoth, the great, the great, the great. So this is Esna Temple. Uh, I was I was there. We did three temples that day. That was a busy day. Uh, we did Esna, 
uh, Abydos and Dendara, all on the same day. Now, I don't know if this is where it says Thoth the Great, the Great, the Great, but this is Thoth within Esna Temple, uh, at least one depiction of him. So I happened to capture this one with my camera, not knowing I was going to be using it <laughs> for uh, this particular discussion, but, uh, but there you go. So basically the idea, as above, so below, we're talking about effects of celestial mechanics up upon the Earth. So I'm going to read a couple things actually straight from the Kabbalion here. So... Um, so, and this is basically uh, hermeticism here. Uh, so, principle of correspondence. Uh, this principle embodies the truth that there is always a correspondence between the laws and phenomena of the various planes of being in life. Just as a knowledge of the principles of geometry enables people to measure distant suns in their movements while seated in an observatory, so a knowledge of the principle of correspondence enables people to reason intelligently from the known to the unknown. So basically the idea that, hey, if I can sit in an observatory and make an observation about the universe, about the planets, about the heavens, and come to some sort of you know conclusion, then we can do the same thing with other things that are unknown out there in the universe, that we can peer, you know, using our using our intellect and the tools at our disposal, we can kind of peer into that other side and glean uh, different facts and ideas about it because we are we're observing these different things here so so it is uh, within the universe because of this uh, the other reason here uh, planes of correspondence this principle embodies the truth that there is a harmony agreement and correspondence between the several planes of manifestation life and being this truth is a truth because all that is included in the universe emanates from the same source, the same laws, principles, and characteristics apply to each unit. So basically the idea that, um, of course, you know, I'm talking Big Bang here, but essentially coming out of the Big Bang or coming out of the creation, whatever you believe that creation is, that it all has the same origin. So therefore, uh, as everything expands out from that, and these different things get created that the same principles are going to apply and manifest throughout every single one so you know as the universe is created here so it is created there um, and this would even apply for something like the the multiverse you know as this universe is created as that universe is created etc etc and on and on all encircled of course by the Ouroboros so that as um, you know, as this one falls by the wayside, it recycles, renews again, and comes back. So, all right, we got about five minutes left here, um, and I guess okay, I have a couple other notes here. So, what does this all mean to us? <laughs> um, and these are just a couple of uh, just a couple of examples here. You know, I mean, there, there's so much symbolism uh, within this world that I mean, this is I mean. It's not even scratching the surface at all. It's like just barely even even pecking at it. Um, we've talked a lot about the repeating cycle, but you know we've also noticed here you know lost knowledge, uh, lost technology. I saw you know Tom here make a, uh, a comment a, a little bit ago about uh, you know 
you know, maybe harnessing lightning, uh, maybe harnessing, you know, going back to the Viracocha or, you know, the rods in Egypt and all that. Um, we're not sure what those rods were. It's a, it's a lost technology. Uh, you know, there's, there's speculation that some of these things have been found and they're in the hands of private collectors, uh, you know, or maybe they're, you know, so powerful that when they were found, you know, if they're still with like, you know, the antiquities department that you know, they're keeping them hidden for, for right now, because it's, it's not something we could, we could handle. And then it even makes you wonder, okay, you know, uh, is that going to be something that becomes militarized? You know, like we saw that we saw the movie Stargate and they naturally instantly mil militarized that. Uh, there's the, the, uh, the Area 51 of Egypt, where they believe there is a working Stargate. Uh, you know, it's a, you know, something that would have been, you know, discovered that they're not sharing with, uh, you know, the rest of the, the world. So there are people that believe they ha that these things have been found. But to the rest of the world, it's still, it's still lost technology. It's still lost knowledge. How much over all this time um, have we you know, have we lost? And it, uh, Graham Hancock likes to uh, use the term that we are a uh, we're species with amnesia. We have forgotten our long past, where we came from, and how we did many, many different things. Yeah, we have all these great gadgets now. We're able to use computers. We have this internet, all this great stuff. The cameras. They didn't really have that type of technology back then, but they had a type uh, that we just don't know how to do these days. You know, build these you know massive structures and move these. In incredibly heavy objects and um, if they were able to uh, harness portals and stargates and, and be able to travel the stars and we certainly don't have that today but they may have had that back then a lot of evidence points toward that that they had that back then uh, so we have lost a lot and these symbols that are uh, within these sites and are on these you know, whether it's an ancient piece of pottery or on the walls of a temple or whatever, um, they're showing us little glimpses of that. And there's there's Nicole. It was aliens. <laughs> well, and that's a topic for a whole other whole other discussion. You know, whether we were, um, you know, whether we are the alien race or there is an alien race that uh, you know manipulated the. Um, uh, the the life forms that were on here to create us that's a discussion for another day but uh sure it was aliens <laughs> all right everybody thanks for joining us for another connecting the universe interactive class uh absolutely appreciate all the input you guys give uh through throughout uh the hour the questions that you ask the uh you know even the little we'll go back to it again the little questions that we post before the show which ancient symbol calls to you for those listening after the fact which ancient symbol calls to you those that are listening to the podcast or on the syndicated shows come join us connect the universe portal.com till next time everybody